Genesis chapter 20. We'll read our text here. We're going to attempt to do Genesis 20. I finally have come to the admission that I'm not doing an overview. I'm, I'm doing expository teaching on Genesis. Uh, the whole goal was to kind of look at an overview, but then I get into a text and I, I can't skip verses. Um, I apologize, but this is just good stuff. So uh, we're just going to do whatever the Lord wants us to do here and move through it chapter by chapter. Genesis chapter 20, now Abraham journeyed from there toward the land of Negev, and he settled between Kadesh and Shur, then he journeyed to Jaar. Abraham said of his wife, she is my sister. So Abimelech, being king of Jaar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream of the night and said to him, behold, you are a dead man because the woman whom you have taken, for she is married. Now Abimelech had come near her, and he said, Lord, will you slay a nation even though blameless? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister, and she herself say, he is my brother? In the integrity of my heart and the innocent of my hands, I have done this. And then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this, and I also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore... I did not let you touch her. Now therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not restore her, know that you surely you will surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose in the morning, early in the morning, and he called all the servants and told all these things in their hearing, and the men were greatly frightened. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and all my kingdom a great sin. And you have done me these done these things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, Why have you encountered what what have you encountered that you have done these things? And Abraham said, Because I thought surely there is no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she actually is my sister, the daughter of my mother, excuse me, the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And it came about when God caused me, caused me to wander from my father's house that I saw her. This, that I said to her, excuse me, this is the kindness which you will show to me everywhere we go. Say of me, he is my brother. Abimelech then took sheep and oxen and male and female servants and gave them to Abraham and restored his wife Sarah to him. Abimelech said, behold, my land is before you. Settle wherever you please. To Sarah, he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Behold, it is your vindication before all who are with you, and before all men you are cleared. And Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech and his wife and his maids, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed fast all the wombs of the household of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. This is God's word. You may be seated. Father, thank you for continually, continually to teach us about yourself. The Word of God has an endless amount of truth to study and know you, Lord. We do not need further revelation. We have your Word. And it is a, a bountiful harvest, a bottomless pit of, of understanding. We cannot fathom your ways as we just study what we do have about you let alone, Lord, what we'll learn in all of eternity. 
So continue to teach us great things about you, that it would cause us to love you, walk with you, worship you, and serve you throughout the days you give us, Lord. We pray as we struggle in our sinful life at times, Lord, that the truths that we learn from your word will help correct us, Lord. We would see sin as you see it, and we would live for you, Lord. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Fear is an interesting thing. Um, Fear is behind almost everything that takes place in this text. Fear drives men and women to do all kinds of crazy things. It builds up within people a distrust. And fear is something we just wrestle with uh, continually. And think about this. The arch enemy of God is never resting. He will not rest till God throws him into the pit someday. He is always at work. And then you combine that with our flesh, even as believers, even as those who follow God, you combine that with our flesh and our fear, and we can really make a mess of things, can't we? I mean, just think about what our choices do before this almighty God who's watching all of these things. And fear will lead you to terrible decisions. Terrible decisions. And we see that in this text today, but we also see the graciousness of God. He is constantly gracious to his children. Well, four thoughts as we go through this. We'll work our way down through this text and see what we can learn. Number one, our flesh and fear will always lead us away from the will of God. They just will. If you lean on your flesh and lean on fear and you let that dominate you, it'll, you'll find yourself very lost at times. I mean, we've all said that. I was in the desert or, or I just was out of the will of God. You know where that'll lead you. And so this is where we find Abraham again. Now, note that it is a narrative. There's years going by here. But this is within the same year and probably, probably within three months, we would imagine, of the angel of the Lord, probably the pre-incarnate Christ, meeting them in the oaks of Mamre and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And yet he's kind of right back there of that fear of man versus the greatness of God of what he has told him. Look at verse 1 with me. Now Abraham journeyed from there toward the land of Negev and settled between Kadesh and Sur. Then he sojourned into uh, Jaar. Now, Jaar is uh, a land of King Abimelech. So he is deep within the future promised land. He's he's ventured farther into what God promised someday he would give the nation. That is not even a nation yet. It's him and Sarah, right? The child has not even been conceived or born yet. And so here he's traveled deep in there. Now don't, don't forget, he stood up on the plain and he looked at what God did to those cities. Two of them were Sodom and Gomorrah, right? There was nothing left but smoke. So when, when he comes to this, he's, he, he's going, wow, is there anybody righteous out there? So there, when I read this today as I was working on this again, I thought, Lord, he did have, I mean, it was a fearful situation. He knew what Sodom and Gomorrah was like. He begged for ten souls that would be saved. And there weren't ten souls. So he, he, in his mind, he knows everywhere he goes, there's wickedness. And now he's deep into the land of Canaan. I mean, even his own 
nephew, Lot, and his daughters have been driven away and fallen into a disgraceful sin and have started two nations that will be a thorn in the future. So Abraham, in this first verse, he leaves Hebron and he travels to Jaar. And guess where he's at now? He, that's the capital city of the Philistines. We remember who those guys are, don't we? Big tall guy, you know, loses his head over things. You remember that. This is, this is where he's at. So just that so you have an understanding. Today it's in modern day Gaza. If you can think of Israel and where the Gaza Strip is, that's where this is all taking place many, many years ago. It's a very prosperous city. It's a trade route between Damascus and Egypt. So it's wealthy. And the Philistines, if you think about them, and it isn't hard to go back to Genesis 10. I don't have time to do it, but you can go back and look in Genesis 10 when it says these are the sons of Ham. It goes down, a, oh, I'm going to guess somewhere around 12, it'll say a several guys' names, I can't remember them, and it'll say the father of the Philistines. So these are descendants of Ham. These are the one that Noah, uh, God cursed through Noah um, as being those who would be enemies to Israel. There's a social structure in Jaar that has been much like Egypt. So he's already been to Egypt. He's already played this game once in Egypt with a pharaoh, right? She's my sister. That didn't go really well either. Um, so we're back to that again. And so these same fears have gripped them. Look at verse 2 with me. There's interesting words in here. Abraham said, look at this little phrase, look at this little preposition of here. Of Sarah, his wife. So he said something about Sarah, his wife. She is my sister. So Abimelech, king of Jaar said, uh, sent and took her. Now, this is that half-truth, right? He, he's going to explain it later. She's, she's, not, um, she's not really fully my sister, but she's kind of my sister because she's not from my dad, but she's... No, wait, she's not from my mom, but she's from my dad, so she kind of is, and I met her along the way, and oh, here we are. A little different society back then, right? But it's totally a half-truth. And are half-truths lies, or are they just half-lies? There's a lie, Right? And so he's struggling here with truth. And, and get what's going on. Abraham is said of his wife. And it, it's a narrative, but you can hear what's going on. She is my sister. So Abimelech, he's king of the land, right? And a good king knows what's going on in his land, right? Oh. Abraham is in my land. I'll tell you what, I'll guarantee you he had those spies out there. What king would not know who was in the land? Particularly a guy like this who knocked off five kings in Genesis 14 with his, with his uh, servants and uh, livestock guys. I guarantee he knew he was in this town. He knew he was in this land. And so Abraham's talking. He's telling people, oh yeah, this is, this is my sister. He's speaking of her. Guess what that gets back to? Gets back to the king. Be careful what you talk about. <laughs> Be careful about your half-truths. They usually come back to bite you pretty hard. And this one does certainly do that. Notice he sent and took her. Um, so this is what kings do, right? You, look at me. I'm going to prove this to you. In the future, from here, go to 1 Samuel chapter 8. I want to prove to you this is exactly what God said through the prophet Samuel would happen. When you get around kings, what they do. You know where I'm going? Anybody know this passage? 1 Samuel chapter 8. It's a warning against the king, right? Israel's crying out, hey, we want to be like everybody else. We want a king, right? We don't want to trust you, God. 
We want to be just like everyone else. It's kind of like a junior higher, and that's kind of a slight against the junior hires. They have God who separated seas, who wiped their enemies out and washed them up on the shores, fed them bread from heaven, brought water out of, water out of rocks, and yet you want some man? <laughs> to us, it's uh, unfathomable as we think from our New Testament perspective. Notice verse 10, so Samuel spoke all the words to the, of the Lord to the people who had asked him of a king. And he said, this will be the, uh, the procedure of the king who reigns over you. He will take your sons and place them for himself in his chariots and among his horsemen. And they will run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and of fifties. And some to do his plowing and to reap his harvest and to make his weapons of war and equipment of chariots. He will also take your daughters, <laughs> i.e. sisters, <laughs> For perfumers and cooks and bakers, and he will take the rest of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give them to his officers and his servants. He will also take your male servants and your female servants, your best men and your donkeys, and use them for his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks, and you yourself will become his servants. That's what kings do. <laughs> okay? So I thought about that as a study, and I was like, oh, he's just doing what kings do. Wow. Look at Sarah. And not only just, and we're going to talk about it in a minute, she's 90, and yet she's beautiful, I guess. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, yet what comes with her? Her, quote, brother is wealthy. So there's a tie there. And every king wants to increase his wealth. He also wants to increase his children. The more children you have, the more great you are in the eyes of your people. And so, as you look at just verse 2, he's, he says, look, um, there she is. I'm going to go get her. Now, let's talk about Sarah for a minute. This 90-year-old woman, and kings are after her. She, she's beautiful. The Bible tells us repeatedly that. I read quite a bit on this, thinking through this, going... You know, I think, you know, a lot of our older women in here, I don't know if we have any 90-year-olds, they're beautiful ladies. I, I don't know if kings are coming after you anytime soon, but um, I hope it may be a good one. Uh, um, but uh, I have to be careful here, shouldn't I? Uh, <laughs> but it is kind of amazing, huh? You kind of think about this a little bit and go, what, this woman, what was this woman like? That kings are coming after her. And so I read quite a bit on this, different guys that I, I respect their opinions. And, and some had some interesting thoughts, maybe um, just the blessing of God on them. It not only affected them financially and, um, and they were prosperous. And some even said it, it had to affect them physically. Some say that the, the trees in Mamre there, the oaks of Mamre, that that engagement there with Probably the pre-incarnate Christ was an amazing event on them. And there was a renewal process in there. I, the text doesn't say any of that. So I don't know. I'm just thinking through this. But I'm thinking, wow, it is amazing that these kings all over these, this land of Canaan keep coming after the same woman. There's something about Sarah. Men are attracted to and they want her in their, in their harem. Uh-oh. My notes are out of order. Hang on. <laughs> I just jumped. <laughs> Here we go. Um, 
And, and so it's, it's just an interesting scenario. How about, thir- uh, wow, I put my notes together wrong. Sorry, hang on. There we are. Um, so hang on. This doesn't happen often, but when it does, it's terrible. That's three. Hmm. I did something terribly wrong here. Okay, so that's got to be there, there, there. Okay, here we go. <laughs> that is not homiletically correct when you mess up your notes like that. Um, however, let's think about her just a little farther. Um, she's 90. You're a king. You want her in your harem. A harem was to show who you were, your wealth, your prestige, also was to bear children. But the Bible says that her womb was dead. Isn't that interesting? And yet God, God is showing us that there's something about her that these pharaohs and these kings are wanting her in. Um, uh, Hebrews 11 says she is beyond childbearing years. Uh, Genesis earlier, 18, is reminded of those things as well. Romans 4.19 probably is the most significant verse. It's speaking about the doctrine of justification, but uses them as examples. It says, without becoming, weak, without becoming weak in faith, he, that's Abraham, contemplated his own body, now as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. And then it says this, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. So, Here's this woman who's 90 years old. She seems so attractive that men who, who own people and vast tracts of land are desiring to get her. And here's God all along protecting her. And it's interesting, we'll see next week, that she conceives with a dead womb, the Bible says. In, in natural, natural conception here. No, this, isn't, this isn't like Christ's birth in any way. She conceives. And let me go just a little bit farther because you think, okay, well this couple's a, you know, getting up there a little bit. They probably have their ARP card and um, you know, certain people are after them for their vote. But Abraham is no spring chicken either. He's 100 years old. You know what he does after the death of Sarah? He marries again and has six more kids. Now, I'm going to tell you a quick story. We bought a ranch from a, a little um, American Indian guy who I had befriended and cowboyed with and did some stuff, and we bought our ranch from him. And nobody knew when he was born. Um, he did not know when he was born. They figured when he died, he was probably around 115 years old, but there was no way to prove it. Um, he was born in a teepee. He took me to the canyon he was born in. This was a neat relationship with this guy. Shared the gospel with him many, many times. Don't know that he ever came to faith, but had a great relationship with him. When he was in his 70s, we figured somewhere between 70 and 85, he fathered a child. <laughs> and when we bought the ranch for him, he didn't want the money, so we, we, worked, uh, uh, we worked it out where we could put all the money in an account so that she could get it when she turned a certain age. Um, she was getting close to, I think, 25. She could have all the money for the ranch and all those things, and it'd be dealt out to her uh, because he thought he would be gone. But um, so that's an amazing thing. But then when you get to Abraham and you go, okay, not only does God open the womb and cause him to conceive at this late age, he marries again and, and brings six more children into the world. So uh, whatever it is, whatever God did with this couple, and I don't know, uh, I don't think there's anything in the scriptures that tell us. They are desirous people to have around. 
And they're, they're amazed. They wrote in my notes, is it possible this is God's uh, supermodel couple? <laughs> they just don't seem to age. However, for whatever reason, Sarah quickly uh, was noticed by King Abella and is taken into his harem. And that's what it is. She's in now in a harem. Second thought, God is greater than our flesh and our fears, and he delivers his own. Look at verse 3 with me. Now look at this little phrase. I have it circled in my Bible. But God. you got to notice that stuff from the Scriptures, guys and gals. Look at that and put a circle around it. I mean, that, that stuff should just jump off the page at you. We got a mess here, right? We got fear and women being taken and put in the herons. And it's just crazy. And then all of a sudden the verse says, but God. He always shows up, doesn't he? And he always does what's right. And, and, and so let me just start with that. But God. And I don't know if you've had those moments where you just feel lost and you were astray and you've made poor decisions or wherever you're at. And then God shows himself mighty to you. And that's what he does here. And he goes right to the source. Notice, but God came to Abimelech in a dream of the night and said to him, Behold, you're a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is married. Despite all our fears and our fleshly decisions, God is greater than those things. Notice he appears to him in a dream, and that's interesting, uh, just in the fact that this is the way God spoke. There's nothing written down about God right now that we know of. There, there could have been uh, text written by Abraham, but he's right here. I mean, we've got to think, there's nothing written down about God. Moses writes the Pentateuch. And so God dealt in unique ways. I was thinking today, I am so grateful that he spoke in dreams and visions and, and through angels and even a donkey. And he did all those things. And then he came to a point where he said, now I've said enough. And it's all written in the word. And that's what he means in Hebrews chapter 1. God, after he spoke long ago in fa- uh, to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, has now spoken in son. So there, it's interesting, and I love the study of this uh, when we're on Bibliology and DTP2. We're working through that right now. And we worship because he goes, I'm going to speak in all these ways. I'm going to communicate all my truth, and then I'm going to shut it off so you know that you have what I said. See, the problem with dreams and visions today is people, we'll just keep adding. When does it stop? And who's of right? And who's wrong? And is that dream of God and that one not? And that vision is? All that stuff. I love that God said, this is it. I'm done now. I've told you everything you need to know. Right now. But here he's doing it. There's nothing written down of God at this point. And he speaks to Abimelech, this king, in a dream at night. Just one more thought about Bibliology. Think about who's writing this. Moses is writing this hundreds of years later in the Sinar plain as they're getting ready to go into Canaan. And he's writing quotes of people. Do you understand that? He's quoting people that are long dead. That has to be inspiration, folks. That has to be God directly telling people what he is saying. He's telling Moses, he's writing through Moses exactly what took place. So when you see your Bible here, this Old Testament Bible here in Genesis chapter 20, and there's quotes around things, (laughs) that is pure inspiration by God. We don't need dreams and visions anymore. In fact, if you want to chase that, you cannot say this Bible is sufficient. Because there's plenty of people who believe in dreams and visions now, right? It's all over the place. It's the hot thing going, right? 
but you don't have a Bible that is sufficient. And I tell people, I say, you can believe in that. I have, you know, people come by and they want to know our view on stuff. I say, well, you can believe it. I'm stopping you from believing that. But you can't have the sufficiency of the scriptures in that too. Because if this isn't enough and he has to speak up and above it, then the Bible isn't sufficient. Is that clear? Do you understand that, folks? How important that is? Because what are you and I going to stand on? If this isn't everything, then is there something else? It's so important to realize that you have a complete Bible. And when you see dreams and visions, that's wonderful because God was laying his word down to us through amazing events so that we would have a Bible later on. And then he would say, that's enough. You have everything you need now. Live for me. Just a little bibliology there. Notice in verse 3, he says, you're a dead man, for she's married. Isn't that interesting? Not only is God speaking through a dream here, but he is giving his very clear view of adultery. Isn't he? She's not your wife. You're a dead man if you touch her. What do you think God thinks about immorality? I mean, if there's any question here at all, and we can, I think we can understand what God thinks about immorality. He is saying, you're a dead man. You're a dead man. Now, this comes out later in Leviticus chapter 20 when the law is given. Years and years later, Moses is writing down the law. God has given it. He says, if a, uh, verse 20, verse 10, if there's a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery is the, with his friend's wife, the adulterer, and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. That's God's view. You go, well, that's Old Testament. Well, you want to look at New Testament with me? 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And there's tons of these passages, but I just want to show you a few. But I also want to show you the grace of God, because I don't want you to walk out of here and say I'm a dead man or dead woman. There is repentance. Or do you not know, verse 9, it's challenging the church. They're suing each other. There's immorality going on in the church. Nobody's doing anything about it. There's no church discipline going on. There's, there's difficulties within Corinth. And he says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So unrighteous are unrepentant people. People who have not come to faith, who have not repented of their sins. So that's how that, you're either righteous or you're unrighteous. There's nothing in between, Right? You either declared righteous, you wear the righteousness of Christ. We sang that song. Um, we said it several times. We talked about that in our songs today. You either address in the righteousness of Jesus Christ or you're not. There's one or another. There's no, no gray area here within the Bible. Okay? So he's talking about that. If you are not righteous, if you're still unrighteous, not dressed in the righteousness of Christ, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. You cannot have it. You can't inherit it. It won't be yours. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators... We get into the immorality here, or idolaters, or adulterers, or effeminate, or homosexuals, or thieves, or covetous, or drunkards, or revilers, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11, let's not stop there because verse 11 is a beautiful verse, isn't it? And such were some of you. Maybe should say, such were all of you. You go, wait a minute, Scott, I didn't commit that. I go, you were possible, you could have. Think about it. Every one of those things you are capable of doing if it wasn't for God. All right, But he says, such were some of you. But you were washed. But you were sanctified, set apart for me, declared righteous that justification all would take place. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God. So right there it tells us how God thinks about immorality. 
It's not, it's not difficult. And yet, today there's so much pressure on the church right now, and so many churches now are caving and saying, you know, we've rewritten our views, and, so, and it's all about getting people in and not having wars and all those things. Um, but it's so clear, folks. It's so clear. This is what God does. And yet, yet how many in this room can find an area that you actually figure you did do one of these things in here? And you go, well, I don't know if I'm in there. Well, there's one called covetous, so I think you're all in. <laughs> you may have not done some of those other things, but covetous got us all, right? And look, we deserve not being in the kingdom of God, but yet God is gracious and he washes us. He sets us apart, declares us righteous. And he loves doing this. He forgives human, the greatest human sins. To God, they're sin, but we have the great ones, right? Murder, adultery, those type of things, right? Timothy, 1 Timothy, Paul wrote to him and said, I thank Jesus Christ who strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer, persecutor, and a violent aggressor. I mean, we don't let those people on the streets. Those type of people get ankle bracelets and can't go near schools. And I mean, you, you know how we look at this. And yet, he says, I was shown mercy. I love that phrase. I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. That's a willful unbelief. And the grace of God was more abundant with faith and love, which I found in Christ Jesus. It's a trustworthy statement, deserving for full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners among whom I am the foremost or chief of sinners. Mary Magdalene. Luke chapter 7, verse 47, we believe this text is about her. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Isn't it beautiful? God forgives the greatest of human sins. Jesus himself hanging on the cross, forgive them for they do not know what they have done but the point here in this text, as you turn back to our text, is very clear. God sees adultery as sin. There is no other way around it. It isn't find your soulmate. All the things, the million things I've heard through the years in my office. Well, I found my soulmate. The finally the one. and You committed adultery. God says it's sin. You have to repent and turn from this. And I think we see just how he thinks about it. You are a dead man. And he's, you know, he's certainly talking about his womb's going to be dead, because we find that out at the end. But in the end, he will die eternally. Look at verse 4. Abimelech had not come near her. Praise the Lord, right? He's protecting her. And said, Lord, will you slay a nation even though blameless? It's interesting, both Pharaoh and Abimelech take Sarah into their harems, she could have been pregnant by a pagan king. Not by Abraham, not by the one who the seed that's coming through Abraham and passed down through all those patriarchs and matriarchs that God brings about and eventually comes to Joseph and Mary in that little town and he has Jesus in Bethlehem. There's a pagan king that she could have been pregnant by. Abraham, because of his fear, endangered, and humanly speaking here, endangered the promise of God to, to reverse the curse. Right? Now God is amazing. And even though there's a terrible lapse of faith, 
And there are great consequences to this. We've seen that throughout our passages already. But God, but God, he comes along and he stops these things. It's interesting, you remember in Genesis chapter 12, he sent plagues to Pharaoh's household because Sarah was in that uh, harem. You know, you wonder if they wrote that down and then later in Egypt when the plagues are coming, they said, hmm, wait a minute, we've seen this before. Disobey God, get plagues. And that's what he did with the Pharaoh in Genesis 10. But here he sees these terrifying dreams and threat of death and closed wombs, warning Abimelech, this is against my will. This is not what I want you to do here. Notice in, in the verse, end of verse 4, he says, Lord, will you slay a nation even though it's blameless? Isn't it interesting that he appeals to the righteousness of God here? And we don't know that he, there's anything in the Bible ever that tells us that this is a man who knows God, but God has revealed enough to him that he knows this is a living God. He's seen what Abraham has done. He, that, he's a king, man. He knows when other five kings get killed by a guy with a bunch of you know, cowboys and sheep herders. <laughs> he knows this stuff. And so he says, man, I've done what's right. I, I, I didn't know these things. And it's a great reminder. God does protect those who are innocent. And we see that throughout the scriptures. Look at verse 5 and 6 with me. Did he not himself, this is Abimelech saying this to me, say, she's my sister, and she herself said, he is my brother? And look at this plea he makes. I love this. In the integrity of my heart, in the innocence of my hand, I have done this. Verse 5, then the Lord said to him in the dream, yes, I know. You don't have to tell me this. I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this, and I've also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, I love that phrase, yes, I know. Sometimes we think we tell God things, don't we? I think it's good to talk to God. I I ask him things all the time. I sometimes tell him things, and I go, oh, sorry, Lord, Uh, let me rephrase that. You already know this situation. I'm asking for help because I don't know. He knows all things. And here Abimelech is appealing to him on his own integrity. In fact, he says, look, you know that in the integrity of my heart. And this is, this is who God is. He, isn't it interesting? He judges your heart. You ever been judged by somebody unjustly? Probably all of us have it somewhere or another. They don't know your heart. They don't know what you're going through. But there is one who always knows the heart of every man. You can't hide from him. That's one of the things we say in DTB1 all the time is, hey, be honest with God. He already knows it. (laughs) Isn't that a good statement? Because we run around and try to hide things, right? We kind of act like, you know, he, he can't see. We'll go to worship. We'll do some things. And meanwhile, we have the sinful stuff in our heart that we won't admit. And we act like he doesn't know. He knows this. He tells the Bible, look, I know. <laughs> I know your thoughts before you formed them. I'm God. Jeremiah eleven twenty 20 says, but, but O Lord of hosts who judges righteously, listen to this, who tries the feelings and the heart. You want to get into touchy feelings and all that stuff that kind of comes with so much religious stuff anymore? He's trying that. He's trying the good feelings that we have because he made us like him. And so we do have feelings we love, we hate, we struggle, we do those things. We're made in the images of God and so we have emotions. And he tries those. But he tries the heart. That means that the seat 
of all of the decision making and all the truth that goes through, that's what he's trying. He looks right in it and says, I know what you're doing and why you're doing it. And he rewards for those things done in truth and worship. And for the loss, he judges if your heart is not right with him. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, the word of God is living and active uh, and sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of the soul and the spirit. That's the inner person. That's the inner man, the inner woman of both joints and marrow and is able to judge the thoughts, and look at this, the intents of the heart. So I didn't do it. I didn't cross that line. He knows your intents, what you intended to do. (laughs) Oh, Lord, help my intentions not to be against you. I mean, maybe we should pray that because a lot of us go, oh, look, you know, I've I've faithfully and I've done this and I've done that. We got our little list of stuff, right? Maybe we should be praying about the intentions of our hearts. Lord, you know the intent of my heart and it's often wicked. I would never go do that with that person, but I have thought that. It has run through my heart, and I know there's wickedness within my heart. Will you forgive me for my intentions? Ooh, that's getting a little spiritual, isn't it? That's not just legalism. That's just not physical. That's just not living on the outside. He has that ability. See, this is why we still tremble before a God who is very loving and very kind to us, but we still tremble when we get in his presence, don't we? Because no one can do this type of stuff. Look at verse 6, end of 6. He said, I also kept you from sinning against me, therefore I did not let you touch her. See, Abimelech's kind of maybe taking credit. He's going, look, um, you know the integrity of my heart. It's interesting. We don't have to know that any that he has any kind of relationship with God. During this dream, he's, he's saying these things, having this conversation with God. And he says, look, you know the integrity of my heart and I've done. So God comes back and goes, yeah, well, let me trump that. I kept you from sinning. I kept you from sinning. And then it goes on to say, I did not let you even touch her. You ever praise God for a sin that you didn't commit? See, that's why we say, look, brothers and sisters, we may not have done the whole list in 1 Corinthians 6, but we're capable of it. And we thank God that he keeps us from letting our flesh run and do what it often desires to do. See, he knows those things. Clearly, he takes another person's spouse. Um, That's what the Bible is saying here. Isn't that true? So he goes, look, I've not done this, but Jesus is referring, if, if I kept you from doing this sin. So again, we have another theological position here that adultery or taking somebody else's spouse is sin. And look who it's against. He says in the text, it's against me, God says. That's exactly what David said in his great confession, Psalms 51.4, against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. That's probably the greatest confession we have in scriptures written out, David's confession of Psalms 51. It's so laid out. He is so filleted before God. Now, did he sin against Bathsheba and Uriah and and the nation and all that? Absolutely. But his ultimate sin was against God. And so here, God says to Abimelech, look, I kept you from sinning against me. We have one text here. There's no question that adultery is sin against God. 
It's, it's not just a freedom of souls to go out and find whoever and, and marry. And millennials today have said they believe they will marry and divorce up to three times before they find the person. If they marry. Most of them choose, we'll go through people till we find the right one. That's just common fleshly thinking. And, and don't judge it because if you weren't saved, you may do the exact same thing. Right? But God shows us stuff, Right? And so we're not legalists. We go, wow, God doesn't like that. Please, Lord, protect my heart. Help me be true to the one you've given me. Protect my mind and my eyes and my ears and, and, and help me not to go down that road because I want to worship you with my relationship with the person you gave me. We're talking about Abimelech and Abraham and we have all these biblical points here, don't we? About how God looks at us and what he want, how he wants us to live. It's fascinating to me. Look at um, verse 7. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, give her back, <laughs> for he is a prophet. Isn't that interesting? And he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not restore her, know that you will surely die, you and all who are yours. So, so God commands her, return her back. And then Abraham's a prophet. Anybody know that? Isn't that interesting? Well, why is he a prophet? Well, the rest of the verse, good exegesis will just tell you here. Why is he a prophet? He'll pray for you, and you'll live. He'll intercede for you. That's what prophets did. They interceded between God and man. God tells them, hey, uh, Samuel, little Samuel's laying in the, in the temple there. He's sleeping off the side of the temple, and he needs to tell Eli that his sons are going to die. <laughs> right? He's seven years old, I think. Um, Eli, I got something to tell you. God told me to tell you this. He's interceding. He's a prophet. Right? We see that all the time. And so, so he says he's a prophet and he will pray. And we'll see in verse 17 that that's exactly what God does with him. Now, people always need an intercessor and we love this. And Jesus is that intercessor, right? No one gets to the Father except through me. Right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. First um, Timothy 2, 5, there is, there, is no, there is one God, right? One mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. We all need that intercessor. And right here, it's Abraham. He is going to intercede for Abimelech. And even though he is a fallen man and, and fear has caused him to make some bad choices, God uses him to heal him. Now, notice at the end of 7b. But if you do not restore her, i.e., if you don't repent, if you don't change what you've done, know that you will surely die. The wages of sin is death. These are just New Testament principles, right? We see them in the Old Testament. God hasn't changed. He doesn't have, he's not a different God in the Old Testament than he is in the New Testament. He's the same God. He doesn't change. He's immutable, right? So he doesn't change with the shifting shadows. So our theology should not change. And so we see his grace and we see his judgment, just like we do in the New Testament. Notice verse 8. Now Abimelech arose early in the morning, I bet he did, and called all his servants and told all these things in their hearing, and the men were greatly frightened. Well, when you hear God's word, you should get up quickly and react to it. When you read your Bible and God takes you to truth, and he impresses by the Spirit of God through the word of God truth, particularly when it comes to that he exposes sin in your life, don't waste any time. And then Abimelech, though he's kind of a, in a bad position here a little bit, we see him react very quickly. 
And it isn't amazing that there's no law written yet that this was something bad to do, right? There's no, there's no Ten Commandments. There's no Levitical law. There's no ceremonial law. There's, uh, there's no law of Moses written down that has this all in there. But isn't it interesting? He knows it's wrong. Now, he didn't know she was his wife, but as soon as he is revealed, he goes, oh, whoa, this is wrong. So here in a pagan, godless custom, right, godless society, it's, it's borderline right next to Sodom and Gomorrah, all those things. Pagan society, this man knows if you have somebody else's wife, it's wrong. Where, do we have a verse in the New Testament for that anywhere? Romans 2.15, he writes his law upon the hearts of men. There's, no, there's nothing written down about what, what God says about marriage right now. And yet he knows to take someone, well, maybe it was cultural. Well, it's still true today. <laughs> God gives gifts of man and womanhood to one another. It's a gift from God. You don't mess with those things because God calls it sin here. Now, notice 9 and 10. Look at this. And Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? I would probably say the same thing, right? <laughs> you jerk. <laughs> I, that's my commentary. That's not there. Um, I think that's what he said. Uh, and how have you sinned against, how have I sinned against you that you have done, that you have brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me the things that ought not to be done. Right? I mean, what, what's going on here? Verse 10, and Abimelech said to Abraham, what have you encountered that you have done this thing? It's an amazing response of Abimelech to Abraham. Notice he uses the word sin. God's used it about sin, about having somebody else's wife. Now he's using it. Why, why have you done this sin against me? You, you've given me these half-truths. You've, you've given me deception. You didn't give me the full story. You put me into a very difficult position. This is what he's saying. In, in the end of 10, Bimelech wants to know if he was treated wrongly. <laughs> what have we done to you? That you would do this to us. I knew you were in my land. I know you're there. You got, you got guys that can wipe out armies. You got a ton of livestock. I know you're in my land. Have we done something to you? <laughs> I can, see, can you see this conversation going on? Abraham's probably scared because the king's right there. He can say, you're dead, right? He could do that. And why, why'd you do this to me? Why'd you sin against me? Most important, and don't miss this, God's protecting the womb of Sarah. Isn't that amazing? We can talk about all this interrelation, personal things, why'd you do this, and, and half-truths, and all that thing. And on top of all of this mess, God is protecting the womb of Sarah so you and I would have a Jesus who would come live a perfect life, hang on a cross, and die for our sins. He's in this in Genesis chapter 20. And that's beautiful to me. Way back in this mess, there's God protecting the womb of Sarah. And if you, you know, I've read a lot of guys on this, and she's probably right in that time of conception. Could have had a pagan king, and that could have been the end of it from a human standpoint of view. But God would not let the promise of a Messiah fail. His goodness is greater than our sin. Third thought, our omni-God is sufficient 
for life and godliness. Gina goes, well, that's a new word. I said, is this a word? She goes, no. But everybody knows, is that okay? Our omni-God, our all-knowing, all-powerful, all-everywhere God is sufficient for life and godliness. And you think about Abraham, all that God's brought him through. He came from the other side of the river, Joshua says. His father was a complete pagan. He pulls him out. He speaks to him. says, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And from your seed will come where all the nations will be blessed. He takes him through some of the most disastrous things. He takes him through war. He appeals to him um, in, a, in a theophany. He, 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 he walks through all these things, protecting him. We got, we got the Hagar thing going on and all this stuff. And here's God protecting. Look at verse 11 with me. Abraham said, as he responds here to Abimelech, because I thought surely there was no fear of God in this place and they would kill me because of my wife. See, Abraham failed to remember and trust that there was, there was no place or any situation God is not present, not exercising his power over, and knows every detail. I think that's a beautiful verse. Because it reminds us that that's the way we think humanly. Man, I just didn't think God was going to show up, so I did this. Now, we wouldn't say that as good Christians, right? But we acted out. Why did you do something kind of, kind of deceitful to get your way here? Because you didn't think God was there. And that's what we act on sometimes. And Moses, um, excuse me, Abraham says, I just didn't think there was any fear of God here. I didn't think anybody cared, or, and, and I'm just going to die. You have the promise of God himself. Within you and within Sarah, this nation is going to become, but yet there was, there was a lapse of faith there. Look at 12 and 13. Besides, this is his excuse, besides she actually is my sister, the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother, and she became a wife, and it came about when God caused me, so he sees God's sovereign hand here, to wander away from my father's house, that I said to her, and this is interesting, this is the kindness which you will show to me. Mm. Everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. So this was a, a predetermined plan to try to get through life. And I think it was just very, put, it put Sarah in such a difficult position. Now, possibly he thought, okay, this town's going to be just like Sodom and Gomorrah. We're never going to get out of this thing alive. But this, this may have motivated this half-lie, this half-truth in hiding his, mar- his marital status. But ultimately, he put Sarah in a very difficult position. And so I, I got thinking about that. Men, we can do this to our wives. And we often do. Because we fail to to care for them as a weaker vessel, right? The Bible says, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, that they're a weaker vessel. Remember, I told you this many times, not because they're not strong, you know. My wife may be able to take them or not. That's still a debate. Um, um, and, uh, but it means because she submits, she's vulnerable, right? When a woman submits to a man to honor God, she becomes vulnerable depending on what that man's going to do to her. And this is why in 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 through 6 there, that great text, and the Bible says that she, uh, God calls Sarah a holy woman of old. 
It's beautiful and precious in his sight, that type of language that's there, is because she was in a difficult position that her husband put her in, and she still submitted to him, said, okay, this is the kind of kindness I have to show you. And men often will make their wives engage in things that are not really right or full truths. And great struggles come from that. And yet God is so gracious to us all. And he takes us through those difficult things. Notice we'll end with this. For God vindicates victims who trust in him. Verse 14. Bimelech then took sheep, oxen, and male servants, female servants, and gave them to Abraham and restored his wife Sarah to him. And Bimelech said, Behold, my hand is before you. Settle wherever you please. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Behold, it is your vindication before all who are with you and before all men you are cleared. Wow, what, what a statement. He goes, look, I'm going to do everything in my power, both physically and by statement, to show that you were never um, used or, or never violated in any way. It's, it's, you you kind of see who actually has the integrity right now in this text, don't you? It's Abimelech. And he says, look, I've given your husband all this stuff, oxen and slaves and and I'm giving your wife back. And, and wherever you want to go, Abraham, my land's your land. My casa, your casa, right? You got it. Take whatever you want. But then when, look what he says to Sarah. He, now he turns and he speaks to this woman whom he took from, from Abraham and put into a harem. What that night must have been like. That fearful, I can't, I, I can't, can't get my mind quite around that. He says to her, Behold, I have given, and I wrote in my Bible quotes here, your brother, <laughs> a thousand pieces of silver. Behold, it is your vindication. The Hebrew word means it's your covering. I'm covering this. This is my bad. I'm covering this before all who are with you. And then he says this term, before all men you are cleared. It's actually one of the Hebrew words we get our word justification from. You're justified. You've done nothing wrong. And see, this is God working through Abimelech and caring for her. This is what God does, Psalm 68, 5, even to a father, a father to the fathers who is a judge for the widows, even a woman who doesn't have a man who oversees and cares for her. God is that person. Even when husbands fail to protect them, God does protect or vice versa because it happens both ways today. Psalms 146, the Lord protects the stranger. He supports the fathers and the widow, the one abandoned by men, but he thwarts the way of the wicked. So I believe God was very glorified in Sarah's behavior. And I think this is what he's speaking of in 1 Peter chapter 3 when you read that, ladies. She was a godly woman in this case. And you go, well, what about the laughter and giving of Hagar? You know, the great thing is God doesn't, he chooses never to bring our sins up. We do not see the sins of Sarah and Abraham in the New Testament. In fact, there are the, they're in the Hall of Fame, right? A Hall of Faith group. They're, they're remembered for their great faith and trust in God, and that's what he does. And if you're here and you have a sin in your past that is one of the big ones, right? You know, in that list we read. And yet God has forgiven you. Praise him for those things. Don't let Satan bring that back and beat you up. He's forgiven you for that. You've been washed and sanctified and justified and you're free from those things. Because that's what God does and he doesn't bring it up. 
Your flesh may bring it up. You may let Satan come in and bring those things up, but he doesn't bring it up. He forgives. And maybe you go, well, you know, I humbly say this. I, I haven't committed adultery or any of those, those lists, but I have plenty of other sins. Praise God, he forgives you for all of your sins. And he sets us aside. And then finally, we've gone late here, but 17 and 18, look at this. Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech. Remember he said he's a prophet? So he intercedes for him and his wife and his maids so that they bore children. Wow, for the Lord had closed fast all the wombs of the household of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. And if that's how you're known, because you have lots of kids, that was going to be the end of him, let alone God may have just struck him dead. And so this is the graciousness of God, and he's gracious even to Abimelech. So what are you struggling with? What fears do you have in your heart right now? Do not let fear drive you to decision-making. It's just bad. Trust in a gracious God. Go before him. Fillet yourself before him. Say, God, I'm, I'm open. Judge the intent of my heart. Because there's plenty of intentions there that are not with, right with you. And he'll direct your paths. And even when we fail, let me close with this. Even when we fail, and you know this, brothers and sisters, he has been so gracious to you, hasn't he? He does not give us what we deserve. That's the way we, why we sing the way we sing. I, I think that's why Christians sing so well. Because when we sing those words, you know, on my hellbound path, wasn't that what that says, hey, where that last one? I was on my hellbound path. We're going, I know that path. <laughs> he saved me off of that. So that's what motivates us, isn't it? All right, let's love, love our Lord today. Father, thank you for just a great reminder. Way back before the Bible, really in a timeline, had been written down. We have quotes, Lord. You inspired this text through Moses so we, in 2018, can be studying it verse by verse, understanding what you think about sin and, and what you think about fear and how you're greater than those things, Lord. We can learn from this. So thank you, Lord. May you bless your word. May it not return void. May it, may it help us with even the intentions of our hearts, Lord. Cause us to be worshipers in Jesus' name. Amen.